0: Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parashah, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And to explore Kiteitsay this week with us, we have Dr. Christine Henriksen-Garraway, who is the visiting assistant professor of Bible at HUCJIR. She received her doctorate in Hebrew Bible and Cognate Studies at HUCJIR. And Christine is the author of Children in the Ancient Near Eastern Household, and also is married to Rabbi Dr. Josh Garraway, who of course was with us a few weeks ago, making, I think, the first couple therefore to have spoken, albeit a few weeks apart, as our guests on Between the Lines. So a huge welcome to you, Dr. Garraway.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Wonderful. So we look forward to addressing Ketetse together this week. And Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17 requires a man with two wives, to recognize the birthright of his firstborn son, even if his mother is the less favored wife. What is the intertextual relevance of this? And there are many intertextual linkages that we see across Deuteronomy, this perhaps being one. What is the importance also if I may, of the status of firstborn sons in the Bible and also the ancient Near East?
1: First, I would say that a lot of the laws that we get within the biblical text seem strange and foreign to us today. Sometimes we have laws about goring oxes or what to do when you you have a runaway. And this law is also odd because I would say many cultures today do not practice marriage of multiple spouses. So this law already strikes us as a little bit strange when we first read it. But if we look for some of those intertextual cues that you were talking about, oftentimes what we find is that laws will show up again in other law codes in the biblical text. So the goring ox, which I alluded to, or there's laws on slavery that appear other times, like in the book of Exodus or the book of Leviticus. But here, this particular law seems to be referring to some narratives that we have earlier within the Torah. And we think specifically of other places where we see our patriarchs having married multiple women. Um, So I think we'll probably talk about this a little later on in the podcast, but we'll just hint here that we have Sarah and Hagar and also Rachel and Leah as women who are both married to the same man and These women have children with the same man and problems ensue. So the intertextuality can help us understand or think about perhaps other places in the Torah and question what exactly is going on and perhaps give us some more insight. So that's your first, I would say, the answer to your first part of your question. Now, regarding this actual law and what it's discussing is looking at the firstborn son and Specifically it says the firstborn son and not just the firstborn sons were extremely important in the ancient world. All children were important in the ancient world, but sons especially because sons were needed to carry on the father's name, not just his, like last name, but that by name it means like his reputation and his sta- status and place within the society. You would also need, in a patriarchal society, a male child to manage the family estate. So all legal things were done by men in the patriarchal world, with some exceptions, depending for women, sometimes they were able to do a few legal things. But for the majority of the cases that we have within ancient Near Eastern law, it seems to be that by default, it went to the males. Firstborn sons would also provide for younger children in the family when the father was no longer able to do, which becomes especially important if you do have situations where you have multiple wives. You could have a very wide range in ages of children. So you could have your oldest son, I don't know, let's say who's 30, and then a very young son who is not of legal age and would need someone to take care of them. Firstborn children would also provide dowries for their younger sisters if the father had passed away. And also, firstborn sons were responsible for paying for the parents' burials, engaging with funerary customs as also as well as yearly mourning ceremonies, and upkeep of the grave. So all of these things make having the position of the firstborn extremely important. And to compensate for all of this extra added responsibility that the firstborn had, the firstborn received what is called a double portion. Now, we're not sure. There doesn't seem to be throughout ancient Near Eastern law or law cases like a specific monetary amount for this. But it's probably on a case by case basis, double of what the other children would get. So I think that covers our first question and who the firstborn is and why they are important.
0: Thank you so much for that. And maybe jumping to that intertextual Reference that you made as a possible connection between Reuben and Joseph's birthright issue and the law that we find here. What do you see as perhaps the connection there?
1: Like I mentioned, we have a case where two women have married the same man. We have Leah being the older sister. With the whole trickery that happened, she gets married off first instead of Rachel, much to Jacob's chagrin, and then Rachel is married to Jacob second. So Leah becomes first wife. She also becomes the woman to have the first child in the marriage relationship, and that first child is Reuben. So according to ancient Near Eastern law and according to biblical custom, it would seem that Reuben would be the firstborn child would be in charge of all of these duties that I just mentioned and would indeed receive the firstborn share. Rachel's firstborn child is Joseph. And we know that Joseph is loved quite a lot by his father. Genesis 37.3 tells us that Joseph gets a very special coat, a coat of many colors, because Jacob loves him best. So it seems that not only does Jacob love Joseph best, the firstborn of Rachel, but that he also loves Rachel best. Indeed, we're told in Genesis 29, 31, when God saw that Leah was, and then we can translate this word, either spurned or hated or unloved, God opened her womb. So it seems very clear that within this marriage relationship, Jacob loves Rachel best, and he does not love Leah as much. So if we think about how this law would apply or what might happen in light of this practice, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, so one being Rachel and one being Leah, the firstborn son of the unloved one, if it is the firstborn, you can't deny that firstborn son his birthright. So for the example that we're using here, Reuben should get the birthright, he should not fall out of favor to Joseph. But it seems perhaps that this is exactly what happens. When Jacob is on his deathbed, he blesses all of his children. And then, of course, in, in Jewish tradition, the these blessings that we'll talk about in a second are very important on Friday night as we bless our children. But Reuben gets rejected. By Jacob, in Genesis forty nine three, as Jacob starts blessing all of his children, he says, "Sorry, Reuben, you done bad. You went and you sinned with Bilha." And so then you have to go back in the text and remember what exactly Reuben did. And he slept with his father's concubine or his father's second tiered wife. However, we understand Bilhah. Basically, he committed, according to the to Leviticus. Some sort of interfamily incestuous relationship. And so he is not able to get the blessing that he hopes he would have had. Now, why in the world would Reuben have slept with Bilhah to begin with? Probably so that he could establish in a family with 12 brothers, could establish that he was the one next in line after his father. And we see this sort of practice in other societies, kinship based societies, where Older children would try and sleep with those women who would be second-tier wives or concubines in order to establish their place within the household. So this seems to be what Reuben was doing, but that was not good according to Jacob. So Jacob rejects Reuben. Then you might think, okay, then the next brother would get the firstborn status, and that next brother would be another son of Leah. But instead, what we see happening is not this, but hints. The text, I think, hints three times that what Jacob really wanted to do, and perhaps even did, it never says explicitly, is to give that firstborn blessing to his firstborn child of his loved wife, i.e. Joseph. So I already mentioned in Genesis 37, 3, where it says Jacob loved Joseph best, and he gives him a special coat which scholars have understood as some sort of marker, perhaps, of this firstborn status. And then when Jacob is giving his blessing to Joseph, he, in Genesis 48, 22, awards an extra portion more to Joseph than his brothers, which seems to ring of that double portion. And then a few verses earlier in Genesis 48, 5, He blesses both of Joseph's son, Ephraim and Manasseh, and this is where parents on Friday night would say, may you become like Ephraim and Manasseh to to their son, and this seems to be suggesting that what's happening here is that the firstborn is really receiving two tribes rather than just one tribe, so Joseph doesn't get one tribe, his his line, he gets two tribes, which again seems to be this double portion. What we see here seems to be that Jacob's family is not following the sort of what we would expect in light of Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. That indeed, Jacob gave his firstborn of his loved wife the double share and made him firstborn status and demoted the firstborn of his hated wife.
0: Thank you for walking us through that complex puzzle. And I think there's another puzzle maybe to unravel, which is the scholarly debate as to whether Deuteronomy is influenced by this Genesis episode that you've just referenced, or whether it's the other way round. Where maybe do you stand on that and why?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. Always trying to figure out in what order the biblical texts maybe arrived into our tradition. And I mean, I guess one answer might be that they're totally unrelated, that this is just a practice that happens in the ancient world. And they just we have a law about one situation, but Jacob's family operates according to however he wanted to operate, according to another situation or that Genesis came first and could have nothing to do with Deuteronomy, which came centuries later. That could be another approach. But I think that the two texts are actually talking to each other because it uses a very specific and rare phrase in the biblical text. When discussing firstborn. It doesn't say the firstborn child. It says the first issue of his or my vigor. So it uses this circumlocution to mean firstborn. And so I think there's some intertextuality there and scholars debate back and forth, like which came first, the law or the narrative. And I'm going to punt on this and say, I don't really know which one came first. But I think that our tradition included both in order to give us food to chew on and things to think about when we dissect these texts. We can ask whether or not Jacob did the right thing. I think Jewish tradition is really good at setting up examples of heroes in the tradition. We have Jacob who becomes Israel. We have King David who is Melech David, the Messiah will come. But yet both of these people have, they're, they're real. They have flaws. And so if we didn't have a law, like if we don't think about this intertextuality between Deuteronomy and Genesis with regard to this, we might think that Jacob just did whatever Jacob wanted to do. We can ask, maybe Jacob did something not right. And indeed, it seems, if we look at the book of first chronicles, chapter five, verse one, that some of the earliest commentators on the Torah, so the chronicler, noted that Reuben didn't get this. It says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then it gives you a narrative aside, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he is not reckoned as firstborn in the genealogy. So the chronicler here hints at the fact that Jacob didn't really do things according to the correct process. And we get later rabbinic tradition that also hints at this as well. So again, I guess I didn't answer your question, but I threw out a lot of different possible answers to the question. (laughs) Because I think it's just impossible to know which came from which, because when you're dealing with oral traditions, it's really, I think, difficult to figure out which oral tradition came first.
0: The puzzle continues, which is no bad thing. Maybe to now address the other potential intertextual link that you referenced, that of Saron, Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac, and our text here in Deuteronomy 21. Do you see those as potentially strong links?
1: I think what we have here is a link that is maybe more something that's hinted at, because it doesn't use that same rare phrase, and it doesn't necessarily talk about the firstborn status, but we do seem to have a case where we have two women married to the same man and two children and this sort of uh, love-hate relationship. Now, with Sarah and Hagar, it's a little different. The marriage situation here is not of two women of equal status being married to the same man like it was with Rachel and Leah. But instead, what we have is something kinship studies call polychoity, which is a fancy way of saying women of different statuses are married to the same man. So Sarah, in this case, is the primary first tier wife. And Hagar, the language in Genesis 16, is very clear biblically that Sarah gives Hagar to Avram and he goes into her. This is all biblical, like the. Biblical word uh, and and language for he marries her. So now we have a first-tier wife, Sarah, and a second-tier wife, who also happens to be a maidservant, named Hagar. Hagar has the first child. And as the text is very clear to tell us, there is no love lost between Sarah and Hagar. (laughs) And Sarah have a very contentious relationship. So that not once, but twice, Sarah decides that Hagar needs to go. The problem is the second time Sarah says Hagar needs to go, she has a child that also needs to go with her. So the question is, is Ishmael a legitimate child of Abraham and should he inherit as the firstborn child, seeing as he was the firstborn to to Abraham? Now, in most cases where we have second tiered wives, for example, Bilhah and Zilpah are also second tier wives who are married to Jacob. The law of Hammurabi and law 170 talks about this unequal sort of wife status in their children. The children get an equal share in the inheritance. So even if Ishmael is sent off, he should get something. But instead, what Sarah says is he should get nothing. Zero. Not only should he not be firstborn, he should be nothing. So, why totally disinherit Ishmael? Abraham seems a little bit morally conflicted about this in Genesis 21 and doesn't really act on Sarah's wish to get rid of Ishmael and Hagar until God comes in and says, I'm going to take care of Ishmael. But perhaps if we read closely, Genesis 21.9 is giving us a hint as to why Abraham should disinherit Ishmael, or at least should find a reason. And it's because it uses this word that Sarah looks and she sees Ishmael doing something mitzachek. And this, of course, has Isaac's, the root of Isaac's name in it, and Isaac's name we know means laughter. So depending on what translation you look at, Sarah perhaps sees Ishmael laughing. Perhaps another way to, to understand that sahik is playing. And in some places, this also has a sexual connotation, um, meaning to act inappropriately in a sexual manner. And so perhaps the text is saying that this is why Ishmael needs to go because he has acted inappropriately in a sexual sense with or towards Isaac. So again, the text is not Clear as to exactly what happened, but whatever he was doing seems to be enough to give Abraham reason to not just demote him to second tier, not just strip him of firstborn, but to completely disinherit. So, again, how does this relate to Genesis 21 15 through 17? It would seem that Abraham did the wrong thing.
0: So, you due to enemy 21.
1: Oh, sorry. Yes, Deuteronomy.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. A useful Freudian slip.
1: Yeah. So it would seem to be, perhaps, if we're looking at this law of loved and unloved, that Abraham, at first, was going to follow the law. He was very uncomfortable with this idea of kicking the two out until we get maybe some more information, maybe read between the lines. And see that Genesis 21, verse 9, maybe gave Abraham a reason to disinherit, completely disinherit Ishmael. It's hard to say. I guess I'll pause there.
0: It feels the reading of Deuteronomy in light of these Genesis episodes enhances our understanding of Deuteronomy giving it a kind of radical twist do you do you agree with that and is it we've encountered in many of the podcasts for Deuteronomy so far it's radical nature do you see this as yet another example
1: yeah i would definitely agree with that Deuteronomy seems to be very humanitarian in its approach to biblical laws. And I think this is another example where we see Deuteronomy's radical nature here meant to protect the vulnerable. And the vulnerable in this case would be the sons of the unloved wives. As one can imagine, uh, if you have a family, your kids will say, which one of us do you love best? And the parent always says, we love you all equally. <laughs> well, here's the case. Where perhaps this isn't true, or perhaps Deuteronomy is saying, so if we're trying to bring it in here to the contemporary period, don't be the kind of person who passes on your relationship with the other adult in the family to that of the child in the family. This deferred hate from Leah onto her sons, or deferred hate of Hagar onto Ishmael, or other cases that perhaps it's referencing, appears to be a law meant to protect those who are especially vulnerable. And in this case, the vulnerable would be the sons of the unloved wife.
0: Dr. Garraway, thank you so much for exploring all those themes and connecting passages in Genesis that I never thought we would encounter as we continue our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. So thank you so much for those intertextual references and also for really bringing up the importance of these explorations for today as well.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great.
0: If you like this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do find out all about our exciting content that we have on jewishquest.org. We also very much hope that you will join us for the Louis Jacobs Memorial Lecture next week with Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. And we do look forward also to you joining us again for next week's podcast too.